Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. History season. Oh, loop de loo, a dickery doc. Time's running out on the patriarchy's clock because we're coming down the chimney now. And welcome to a, a very festive episode of Whining About History, where we whine about women from history that you probably haven't heard of, but deaf should have. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. It's been a bit since I feel like I did a song parody. It's been like a month. I did the, I did the the Halloween town. Yeah, you did. The Christmas Halloween one. <laughs> so just over a month. By the way, uh that is what I exclusively call the Nightmare Before Christmas movie now. I call it Christmas Halloween. Oh, I do too. Cuz your my nephew calls it that. Yeah, it's his favorite movie, but you know, he's is he even 3? He's like either barely 3 or almost he's 3. three I think. Okay. And he calls it, he goes, Christmas, Halloween, Christmas, Halloween, Christmas, Halloween. I'm like, oh my God, you can murder anyone you want and get away with it. You're that cute. My coworker's son is that cute too. Or I'm like, just go on a killing spree. It's totally fine. No one cares. (laughs) We love you anyway. Yeah. You cherub faced little booger. I love you. Anyway, you said who you are, right? I'm Kelly. Okay. Good. (laughs) Just. Just in case I didn't Just say it. Just in case, you know, it's a name so nice, you got to say it twice. Mm-hmm. What's up? All right. Well, yeah, we're gearing up for the holiday season. Um, it's already too cold, too stressful, and my bank account physically hurts my heart. <laughs> Although I did shockingly get 99% of my Christmas shopping done already, like before December, which is completely uncharacteristic for me. Usually I buy one gift in October and then I'm like, I'm so far ahead of everything. And I coast on that overconfidence until like December 12th. And then I'm like, oh God. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm feeling oddly prepared, which means I am almost certainly forgetting someone or something, which then I will realize around December 20th. <laughs> And then I have to be like, it's it's in the mail. It's totally in the mail. Don't worry about it. And that's very confusing when I make them something. <laughs> no. Kelly, Kelly's shaking her head. She's like, oh, God. Well, I haven't done like sense now. I haven't like done anyone's <laughs> Christmas presents yet. So that's why I'm shaking my head. I'm like, oh, I'm so far by. No, it's okay. Again, I am uh, defying all expectations. By being ahead for once in my whole goddamn life. It only took me 31 years. So, Kelly, uh, you, you, excuse me while I just make some random mouth sounds. Um, Bebbling ASMR, anyone? ASMR mommy? Uh, You picked our wine today. I did. Didn't ya? I did. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness gracious. Give me one second. I'm just doing something so while kelly is doing that i want to give a quick shout out to everyone who's been engaging with us on social media uh we had a minnesota listener who was like i love your snowplow rundown and i read everything that they wrote in a minnesota accent (laughs) so truly authentic um 
we've had some people share with us that we are in their top five for podcasts of the year. So I'm like, what? I was super <laughs> proud because our German listener. What's up, Sasha? Sasha. She's our German correspondent. Um, who we neglect to use. I, I <laughs> saw their story and then I forgot to post it to our story. But it was like all German podcasts and then us. We were number two and I was so excited. Yeah. But I was at work and so I like closed it and then went back to what I was doing and then I forgot to post it. One of our one of our but other I was listeners. Very I was like, yeah, breaking the German barrier. <laughs> one of our other listeners, Rachel, we were their number one. And one of the so podcasts excited. on their la- their list was like feminist financials. And I'm like, Oh my God, that uh, looks she also so fancy. To two of Brene Brown's podcasts and she's like really big in my field. And like, so I was like, Brene Brown. Indie podcast for the wind, y'all. <laughs> no, I'm feeling, I'm feeling very happy. So yeah, if you're in your top five, definitely uh, share that shit on the social meds and give us, give us some love because yeah. it's so dark. It's so dark and cold so dark all the time cold. here. It's oh, God. Colds are dark so early. It I, gets dark at like 3 p.m. <laughs> I realize I should clarify. Brene Brown is not like in psychology. She just talks a lot about like vulnerability and stuff. So hmm. we, we use her TED Talks quite often. That's awesome. She's pretty fantastic. I may have to listen to her. I have not heard of her. Although, as someone who really struggles with being vulnerable, I don't know if I want to. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. She might help me with that. No, that sounds like I'm going to feel way too vulnerable learning how to be vulnerable from someone else who is being vulnerable. I can't do it. It's too much. I can't do it. My soft underside is showing. I hate it. (laughs) That's funny. I'm just going to keep hiding my true feelings with sarcasm and passive aggression. (laughs) All right. We are back to drinking wine today. It's been a minute, it feels like. It has been. In a minute, I'm going to need a sentimental wine. glass of wine to wine. pump me up. <laughs> um, so we're drinking something from the Nihilist Wine Company. It's a 2016 Cab Sauve, Emily's favorite. And on the back, it just talks about pregnant women shouldn't drink while pregnant. Um but it, all it says besides that is trust your taste, nothing else. Which um, is kind of a nihilistic thing to exactly. say where it's like only you, but also it's a great rule for wine. You yeah. know, there, there's all this wine snobbery about. I mean, like I get it. I've watched Frasier multiple times. Wine snobs are real. But if you enjoy it, drink it. Right. It doesn't the, matter. The price does not inherently translate to quality no. or and even wine it snobs good. and like people who say they're well versed in wine generally usually can't tell between a cheap bottle and an expensive bottle when put to a taste test. Yeah, there's a great ad ruins everything about yeah, that. Go watch is. it. Um, but so I looked it up online to get our listeners a little bit more information, and it says an elegant Cabernet Sauvignon. This wine is medium full in body. With rich dark fruit flavors like plum and black raspberry, heavy oak influence, and velvety tannins. Okay. I just want to confirm to everyone, this wine tastes as sexy as the description makes it sound. Yeah, Emily's had some. I haven't. I haven't. I waited. Okay. You know what, though? You can't put wine in front of me 
and then not expect me to just inherently start sipping on it. Okay, I didn't. That is how this works. I'm like one of those little birds that dips its face into the water. It just happens and there's nothing I can do to control it. Um, but what we should cheers. What should we cheers to? Cheers to our listeners. Yeah. For another fantastic year. For people actually listening to us and we we and had liking we, it, listening to us so consistently that we're in their top five. Yeah, and we actually uh, we had another listener reach out and they were like, "Hey, I was just listening to a recent episode in which you were like, I can't believe people binged us." And I'm I'm like, I wonder what episode that was because I think I've said that multiple times. Uh, and they're like, "I want to confirm you are totally bingeable." And I'm, I'm like, like oh, <laughs> I just want to let you know. Um, I almost don't know how to respond to those because the amount of exclamation points available and hearts and everything else um, that we'd want to put do in there. not express it. Uh, also, I just want everyone to be very, very clear on this. When I say I am screaming, I am actually screaming. And my animals can attest to that. Right. Sometimes they're looking I cry at me a little in like excitement. Yeah. My, my animals are looking at me like, mom, why are you doing this to us? I'm like, you don't understand mommy's podcast. People they like us. Like, oh my God. They like me. They really like me. And then my dogs are like, yeah, but we like you a little less. And then I'm like, yeah, but remember who feeds you bitches. Right. And then so. they're like, never mind. <laughs> and then they cuddle up to me. All right. So yeah, cheers to all of the lovely comments, all the lovely lists that we're popping up on. And to any new listeners uh, who are just finding us and they're like, what the fuck is this? When did they whine about the women? We're getting there. We're getting like there. Another two minutes. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Ooh. Good clink. That was a sexy clink. This... This whole room is just pulsating with sexual energy. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I had it for a second and then I actually like looked and then we made eye contact. Kelly wouldn't blink and I'm like, I have to do something now to, to win this staring contest that we've inadvertently found ourselves in. God damn it. Ah, oh, Kelly, you made me do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, isn't this wine sexy? It is. I love, I love Nihilus Wine Co. too. Yeah, Paso Robles, Cab Sauv, 2016. I was. Which I don't look I back was fondly on do that year. a psychology person, which is kind of why I picked this wine. But my story on her is really long, and I know your story is really long. So it's I'm not changing. really long, but. I'm going to change it up okay. so people don't have to listen to us for over an hour like some of our episodes are. I was going to say. I guess we'll see. We'll see how long we bullshit because we're already 10 minutes in and we haven't even actually started yet. You know, that's okay because this is our podcast and you are voluntarily listening to this. No one is making you. Although if anyone is using our podcast to torture people, oh my God, thank you so much for listening. We like really appreciate your support. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for finding us other listeners. Oh my God. We appreciate it. Cause you know what? They're just going to get Stockholm syndrome and have to listen to us anyway. Yep. Yeah. They're going to be like, I I, I need to go back. It'll be like an obsession. Yeah. All right. So today I... I'm whining about Myrtle Gonzalez because apparently, I don't know. Like, I don't know. You'll see. I love, I love, you're like, because apparently, and I'm well, like, I, what? Say I don't know something they, more. And then I was like, I feel eh, like it's I a short story. We'll like get there real quickly. I should know anything about this. Um, all no, like, it's just not a very exciting story. Oh, okay. 
And you're like, because apparently I'm just covering sucky people. Like, yeah. What? Yes. That's what I was going to, that's kind no. of what I was going to say. And then I was like, eh. I also thought you said murder Gonzalez at first. Boring and I was people? like, I am here for murder Gonzalez. Can we bring that name back? Murder. I've, I've worked with kids named Riot and Gunner. We are so close to just naming a kid murder. Mm-hmm. It's like a murder of crows. Go on. Myrtle. Myrtle murder of crows Gonzalez. <sighs> Emily's just making the, shit up now. The woman, the myth, the legend. <laughs> <laughs> so Myrtle was born in Los Angeles, California in, on September 28th, 1891. Ooh, so just a year before Lizzie Bourne axed her parents. Allegedly, she was acquitted. Just that's how I anchor myself. Yeah, I'm. I need to get something like that to anchor myself. To, Yours also needs one. to be completely irrelevant to any topic we're ever covering. I mean, she's a woman. She is. That's it. That is the only connection. <laughs> she is a woman from history times. <laughs> so Gonzalez's uh, family was um, a mixed race family. Her father was Mexican and was a retail grocer, while her mother um, was an Ir- uh, from a family of Irish immigrants and a former opera singer. Ooh, opera. Remember when we went to the Minnesota State Fair and saw the talent show finals? Mm-hmm. And there was the opera singer. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm she was impressed. young, yeah. too. Oh, okay, first of all, I think she won, like, the whole thing. Like, there were age categories, and then there was just a... The general, and I think she was young, but she was shit. in yeah. the general category. Yeah, yeah, she won the whole thing. And I'm like... Yeah, because you get more money if you do the general category. I don't even age. know, like... Opera. It's, Who learns opera? Yeah, it's, it's it's she was it was insane. Talent. No, it's it's a skill. It's nuts. So Myrtle appeared destined for stardom from an early age. She displayed remarkable dramatic talent. Not like in the bad way where kids are where you're like, oh kid, you're so dramatic. Like she was actually like good at it. Oh, I was gonna say, was she like one of those kids where it's like, you are a very difficult child, and if you learn to hone these skills, you will do very well in the world. But right now, you're three, and I hate you. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, she also inherited her mother's great singing voice and had a very good. She was a good soprano. Oh, so high pitched. Wait, I mean, yeah, because soprano one would be like the super high, and then soprano is usually it's like Technically the melody. It's soprano two, and then there's. Alto, which is yeah. where I sit in the range of voices. I I've actually like throughout my schooling, like having you do choir, I've been all three at one point, which I think uh, I don't me. think I was ever a soprano one because I can't like I can get that high, but it's not quality. Yeah. <laughs> well, nothing I did was quality. <laughs> um but so she would start by singing in a variety of local concerts for benefits, church choirs, all from like a young age. Like her parents were like, damn, girl, you can sing. And so she like sang everywhere she could. She would start getting um, stage parts when she was still pretty young, um, along with other notable talent of the day which are other women we're not gonna know like fanny davenport and florence stone oh florence stone emily said acting like she definitely knew who that was just to make kelly feel silly i was like what (laughs) um she would marry her first husband in 1910 so she was what 19 
I was going to say she was born in 1891. This is 1910. So she was too damn young. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say um, it. So she would marry her first husband, James Parks Jones. They would have one son together, James Parks Jones Jr. JPJJ. Um, I hope and, they and called him would, JJ. And then would divorce. There was really not much else to find about They got their married. They had a child and it ended. Yep. You know, some of the best relationships happen or end after having a child. Kids are tough. So Myrtle decided she wanted to be bigger than stage plays. And this shift in her wanting to be bigger just happened to coincide with the shift in the film world moving from New York to Los Angeles. O.M. Snap. So this was, just for a little history, the reason that the movie production moved from New York to Los Angeles was due to the region's more diverse landscapes and how scenic it was. And this is really when Hollywood was born. Okay. I thought it was going to be like the cocaine was plentiful and the No, then they'd move move to Florida. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. No, everyone on like in old Hollywood was on like lived on meth, coffee, oh, yeah. and cigarettes. One hundred percent. Um, so being a Los Angeles native, uh, Myrtle really like ha- was perfectly placed to act on this switch of venue for mm-hmm. all these big companies. And as she continued to be in plays, she kind of like picked plays that were she knew, you know, were being talent scouted. Um, And so she after impressing there, she would join the silent film motion picture studio called Vitagraph or the Vitagraph Company of America was the full title um, where she would go on to make her film debut in a film called The Yellow Streak. Which I'm like. I, I was just going to say, I was like, interesting name I for know. a black and white film. Um, so the, <laughs> it's, it's okay. The yellow was implied. It was strongly implied. People would point. That, that white streak? Pe- it's really yellow. People would point at the white streak and their mouths would move. And then it would cut to a dialogue box that said, look at that very obviously the yellow, yellow streak. streak. Exactly. <laughs> Is, the, are these even silent? Am I just making that shit up right now? I don't actually know. I don't think so. With the with the piano music, like the the really up up tune. Um, (laughs) So in the years that followed, Myrtle would really carve out a niche for herself. She would play bold, outdoorsy heroines um, who were often shown living in the wilderness, which was really like a stark contrast to who she was. Like she was a city girl. She was born and raised in Los Angeles. Yeah. So she really like threw herself into unfamiliar surroundings. To depict these women who were sometimes also like the struggling city girl living out in the wilderness. But she wanted to portray like strong female characters out there doing their shit. You could say she was acting. (gasps) Dun, dun, dun. I cracked the code. Right. So like I said, she liked to adhere to a type that was a strong woman who would overcome adversity through strength and determination. She also would never shy away from celebrating her Hispanic roots and would, would take Hispanic roles quite often. That's awesome. I like that because one, those roles were few and far between two. They could be stereotypical, but also for people who could try to think of the good way to say this mask or hide their heritage 
you know, or pass as having European ancestry only, that was not an uncommon strategy, you know, to, to hide, right. you know, your heritage that was not European. Exactly. So good for her. Like she owned it. And yep. that was not an easy thing at the time. So throughout her career, Myrtle would star in about 80 films or what they called films back then. Um, like I said, it started with the- Do we L- not call them films anymore? Well, here's the thing. <laughs> 66 of the about 80 films she, she starred in were only one or two real films. So they were fairly short. Oh, okay. I, I so they see. Might, today they might be called more like- shorts than they would be films like a straight up two hour movie. film yeah, okay exactly i'm um, like oh i didn't know we'd all agreed to not call them films anymore i thought that was just what we called them we want to be pretentious i'm going to see a film at the theater right so myrtle was best known for her role as enid maitland in vitagraph's six real feature-length drama called the chalice of courage which was produced in 1915 um and a magazine writer during her career would call her the virgin white lily of the screen. Not going to lie, that's kind of hot. I know, right? Like, it's not even the virginity part, but just the virgin white lily. It's a little redundant. Right. Little, you know, but right. I like it. So during her time at Vitagraph, um, another thing she was well known for was her work with um, one of the f- more famous male leads at the time who was named William Desmond Taylor. Mm. I know that name. No, I genuinely know <laughs> that like, name. Really, I'm, I'm like, pretty sure he's popped up in some true crime podcasts I've listened to about like old, old age Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, so Myrtle and William would appear together in five different movies over the course of a year. Or oh, God. Maybe two years because it was 1913 and 1914. Um, I need to remember these are shorter films yeah, because right. I'm like five movies in a year. Are you fucking kidding me it takes like five years to make one film right so these would include comedies such as her husband's friend and millions for defense um along with dramas tainted money the kiss and captain alvarez so they they show they appeared together in a variety of movies films um (laughs) which i'm never gonna stop be able to stop saying it that way so how i found myrtle was because she was recently in a google doodle uh november 23rd was the day she was in a Google doodle. And the reason November 23rd is significant, it was the release of one of her best known, highest grossing films at the time called The Level. Ooh. Um, So after several years, she would leave uh, Vitagraph and Myrtle would move to Universal Studios, which is still around today. Um, And at Universal Studios, she started movies such as The Secret of the Swamp and The Girl of Lost Lake. Um, that's, that is also a very, the girl of lost, like that's hot. I love that. Yeah, which very much like kept to that niche of the outdoorsy heroine that could like stand on her own. Yeah. Which well, I love that. She's like, I want to portray strong women. Like yeah. even if it's out of what she knows, which is probably harder to act, you know, like kind of like when you write an, a book or write a story, it's easier to write about what you know. Yeah, because you know it's going to be genuine. Exactly. Versus, is this how people in the wilderness behave? How often do they whip out their compact to check their... I don't know. Now, see, I've never lived in a big city, so now I'm doing a terrible portrayal of someone who lives in a big city right? and then no pretends idea. to be in the wilderness. 
But I, I like it too. Like if you look at pictures of her, she's very cute. Oh, she is. She's adorable. But she also looks spunky. Like I like got that, this. Like, she's little, little, like a little bit of mischief in the yeah. eyes. Yeah. No, she's like. I might make your life great or I might fuck your shit up. Who knows? <laughs> I just, that's, that's what her eyes are telling me. Right. And she's, she's dead. She's in heaven right she now. Is. And she's being 100%. like, she's being like, finally, someone, someone understands gets it. it. But someone gets these, what I was these, going for. These two girls, they get, they see the mischief. Yes. Um. So on December 1st, uh, 103 years ago, she married actor, director, Alan Watt. Uh, they would get married in Los Angeles, and she would uh, give up her screen work and retire. I couldn't really find why. I assume they were probably they were going to start a family and mm-hmm. you know do whatever. Do, do the she was going to be thing. a housewife, yeah, total um, and valid choice. So they had met when Alan was working as an assistant director at Universal, but by the time they got married, the U.S. had entered World War One. And Alan became an officer in the U.S. Army and was stationed at Camp Lewis in Tacoma, Washington, or near Tacoma, Washington. Um, however, uh, Myrtle's health at the time wasn't great and was viewed as too frail, quote unquote, for the climate of, you know, the Pacific Northwest, which is kind of rainy and damp. Um, so Captain uh, Watt placed... Uh, like got himself to be able to be retired so he could return to Southern California to be with his wife. Um, Once he returned, he would go back to working at Universal. Um, Sadly, Myrtle uh, would die in 1918 at the age of 27 because of the Spanish flu. That, That this was the worldwide pandemic of 1918 of the Spanish flu and she would contract it and pass away at her parents' home in Los Angeles. Because someone wouldn't wear their fucking mask. God damn it. (laughs) No, Um, okay. There were, there are photos from the flu pandemic of 1918. Yeah, some people did people wearing masks and having signs that basically say like, wear your fucking mask. Or like women would wear like veil, like full, full face veils. Like we were having the same argument over a hundred years ago about wearing our masks or not. And I'm like, God damn it. Also. Since we are speaking of death, mm-hmm. the reason I recognize William Desmond Taylor's name, he was murdered. Mm. And I'm pretty sure the case was never solved. Great. Yeah. So I definitely did hear him about him on a true crime podcast. So d- despite her brief uh, time on screen, uh, Myrtle amassed a staggering number of films. Remember um, before I said it was around 80. You have to remember that that was in the span of four years. Even if they're shorts, she still did 80 things in a span of four years. Okay, you know, you know, the the joke that, you know, porn actors have like hundreds of titles associated with them because it really doesn't, you know, take that long. Like that rivals porn actors. Exactly. (laughs) Like that's insane. Her IMDb is redonkulous. Right. Um, and she is remembered as as Hollywood's first Latin and Hispanic film star. Oh, I love that. The sad thing is a lot of her movies have been lost over the years just through various companies going under like Vitagraph or, you know, people not keeping great records of the short films. However, the ones that are remaining, or at least some of them, the Library of Congress has preserved um, 
to serve as a testament to her impact on the industry and how much she did. You know what I also love about this is we talk about how representation is very important um, and also not only acknowledging the discrimination of the past, but also the successes of traditionally marginalized people because the whole painting a group as people of people as being constant, constant victims is all is not healthy. It's not helpful. And it's a fine line to cross when so many people don't believe discrimination happened or is still happening, or they think there's a reason for it. But the fact that she is in the early 1900s as a, a, a Hispanic actor doing the damn thing and portray, and portraying non-stereotypical roles yeah. is huge. Yeah. And then also honoring her heritage and making sure she's portraying like strong women. And like, I just, I think it's great. I love that. So I don't yeah. know why you were like, cause apparently at the beginning of the story, because that was a great story. It's very, I don't know. Short. It's short. It's I short mean, and sweet, but she did a lot. She died young due to a very tragic circumstance. Fucking pandemic, man. Um, But yeah, and I love that the Library of Congress was like, no, we need to preserve like the films of hers that are left yeah. because she did have this like impact on the industry and she was like one of, if not the first Latin and Hispanic film star. So my notes and what I found said first Latin and Hispanic film star. So I... And I, I just want to make a note that that's what I found, that does, it could be the first female Latin and Hispanic. I don't know. Well, okay, the other thing is... I didn't, like, start digging into, you know, the film scene of the 1900... The you know, the 1917 Kelly, Kelly has this really outstanding Excel document where <laughs> she is categorizing every Latinx and Hispanic film star in the United States fucking ever Forever. and she is going to get to the bottom of this right. also i just want to point out uh latin and hispanic those are not interchangeable terms no, oh, they're no not. And, and i and i know you know this but this was also a really fun learning experience for me when i learned about it hispanic is someone who speaks spanish someone who mm-hmm. comes from someplace that speaks spanish latin latinx latino latina however you prefer to say it you come from, from a latin, latin american, american country, country which includes mexico is it? it does. I looked it up because when I saw that I it thought said, they were Central America. When I saw that it said Latin and Hispanic, I was like, she's not Latin, is she? So I like looked up the definition of Latin and it says Latin, Latinx and like all those terms yeah. are people who come from a Latin country and it names the Mexico is in that list. Huh. Okay. Uh not saying Google can't be wrong, but I did look it up. <laughs> Personas de Mexico, como se dice, come at us. <laughs> right. And it was on like Oprah's website that I was reading about it. Well, God, Oprah's never wrong. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't written by Oprah. It was just Oprah's website. <laughs> you know, she, she was completely right about that million little pieces guy. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking A. No, I mean, but, th- but that is interesting. I, I was doing trivia the other night and there was a question. Uh, the category was monarchies and it was... Which continent does not have an active monarchy and Commonwealth countries were included in having an active monarchy? And I think the it was South America hmm. because Belize 
has an active monarchy, but that's Central America instead of Latin America. I don't know. We got it right with no help from me. So yeah, it, was it fine. says, so to be considered Latino, Latino, Latinx, your ancestors must have come from a Latin American country, which includes Mexico, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Cuba, French-speaking Caribbean nations, Central and South America, even though they speak English in regions. Cool. Cool, cool. Which is why you can be Latin and come from an English-speaking area and not be Hispanic. Well, you you can be Latinx and Hispanic, but yeah, they are not interchangeable terms. Yes. Yes. I'm glad you pointed that out. That's a really long way and a really long discussion of us that we brought in Oprah somehow of us saying those are not interchangeable terms just for anyone who wants to know. I actually... I'm glad you pointed that out. Many episodes ago (laughs) when I was like... I learned recently that, you know, Spanish is called a romantic language because it comes has Roman roots and yep. not because it's sexy. One of our listeners reached out and was like, I also just learned that. I think it might have been Marissa. What's Probably. up, Marissa? But yeah, I'm like, oh, thank God. It's not just yeah. me. Romantic languages are not because they sound sexy. It is because they are Roman in, in basis versus... They are um, both, though. Not... All of them. Okay, which romantic language is not sexy? <laughs> Most of them. <laughs> which romantic language is not sexy? I don't know. I'm going to Google it. Kelly is going to attack an entire no, I'm not. <laughs> language. You know I'm not. <laughs> That's when we find out that German is a romantic language and we're like, oh, no, I'm, it's, I'm pretty sure it's not. It's super not. It's not. What is it? I, I was joking that German is a no. German is a Germanic language. Yes. <laughs> so they're like, their own not. thing. Yeah, they got their own thing going on. Uh, they're they they yeah. It's funny because okay, so if you like Google romantic languages, they like it comes up and it says it's a group of languages derived from vulgar Latin. <laughs> like what? Okay, like, I like that, and that's like an actual like historic term. No, vulgar Latin. No, they're it's a prude. They're being a prude, and they're like, "This is vulgar." And then enlightened people like me are like, "You mean sexy? <laughs> you mean fucking hot? So, Panty so dropping." The reason it's called vulgar is because vulgar back then meant common, so it's from common Latin. Wow, we just really hate the mainstream. Yeah, don't we? we do. We're that's, just like fuck the that's mainstream. That's the old school way of saying basic bitch. Oh, you're yeah. a vulgar bitch. It's it's <laughs> it, it also meant like of the people. So yeah, like wow, com- commoners Latin. Like wow, wow. Clearly, some king or queen or like higher up was like, no, that's vulgar. That's vulgar Latin. Fucking Latin Fraser over there being all right? hoity-toity and elitist. <laughs> On that note. Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. 
You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash herstory. Well, Emily, who are you whining about today? Today I am whining about Shizue Kato. Oh, God. Yes. I'm going to Japan. Shizue Kato? Shizue Kato. Shizui. Sheed. Sheed. Oh, there's a D in there I was missing. Zue Kato. I'm also saying this with so much confidence, probably saying it wrong. We're going to go with it. You know, until we have a Japanese correspondent, correspondent, (laughs) they have to deal with it. I'm just going to call her Shishi. (laughs) We'll not do that. Just call her Cat. Just call her Kit Kat. Because. Because it, it's, I'm guessing it's K, Kato. Yes. Uh, but it sounds like Gato, which is Spanish for cat. Which is definitely related to Japanese in some way, <laughs> shape, or form. No, 100% not. <laughs> and Neko. Neko. Yeah, is cat. cat in Japanese. And I know that because I was an anime nerd and all of the Japanese words I learned mm-hmm. are fucking useless in the real world. Yay. <laughs> Unless you're a fucking weeb. Anyway. So I'm covering Shizue Kato. So Shizue Kato was born as Shizue Hirota on March 2nd, 1897 in Tokyo, Japan. I don't know why I'm trying to like say Tokyo all fancy. You're fine. I'm, I'm a Midwestern girl. There's only so much people should expect of me. Um, or it was as it was known at that time, the Empire of Japan. It wasn't just Japan. Uh, she was born about 30 years after the Meiji Restoration, during which Japan restored imperial rule and underwent a rapid modernization after having been exposed to Western civilizations, after being isolated for what is a truly impressive amount of time, considering all of the colonization, oh, yeah. conquest, and all the other shit that we've talked about through the last three plus years of this podcast. So, Shizui's family had formerly been samurais, though the samurai class had been outlawed shortly after the beginning of the Meiji Restoration. Anyone who has watched Roroni Kenshin will know what I'm talking about. So, despite this, they had maintained wealth and connections. So, they still were like a high-status, right. noble yeah. family. Yeah, it was just like, you just can't like be fucking slicing people up anymore. <laughs> That's not a thing mm, anymore. If you could just not, that'd be great. Just, just put the sword. Just put the sword down, please. Uh, so her father, Ritaro Hurota, was likely one of the first generation not to follow in his ancestors' steps as a samurai, and he studied at Tokyo Imperial University and became a successful engineer. Her mother, Sarumi Toshiko, uh, also came from a well-off family and was afforded an education. So, like, she's always off to a good start. She's coming from a good family. She's got connections. She's got wealth. Everything. Everything's coming up Shizue. Uh, oh, crap. Okay, also, I'm reading these notes off of my phone because my computer is getting uh, futzed with, so I may struggle with my notes a little more than usual, or at least in a different way. It's fine. 
Remember when you would always do it off your phone? You're yeah, like, it was terrible. My notes just skip to the end. I feel like that's going to be me. Uh, you want to use my computer? No, it's okay. fine. We got this. We're already in it. There's no turning back now. So Rutaro's work took him west frequently. So Shizue grew up uh, regularly exposed to Western culture and ideals. And like her mother, she was afforded an education, attending Gakushun Girls School for Japanese nobility. And one of the primary purposes of this school for girls, was to teach them how to become good wives and mothers. Top-rate education. Top-notch. Yay. Yes. Yep. Definitely. So whatever education, um, like whatever she really got out of that education, uh, it ended when Shizue was 17 years old and was married to Baron Kichiki Ishimoto, the son of Shinroku Ishimoto, an Imperial Army general and the former minister of war. Um, despite his father basically being the war guy in Japan, Shiro- Shinroku described himself as a Christian humanist and was passionate about social reforms and a bit of a pacifist. Just a bit. That was his. That was his rebellion. Like, his dad's grooming him to be in the military. He's like, you can't tell me what to do, Dad. I'm going to do passive resistance. Nah. And he just never grew up being a 13-year-old punk who yeah, that's is anti-violence and is like, maybe we can make the world a better place. So he worked as a mining engineer, and the couple moved to Mike Coal Mine in Kyushu, Japan, uh, for his work. Yay. So the Mike coal mine was the largest in Japan dating back to the 1700s. It had been owned by like families and now it was just owned by the government of Japan. And it was critical to the industrial revolution that Japan was undergoing because they're doing this rapid modernization. They need their coal. And this is like the coal spot. This is like the it spot the, for coal. Like if you need coal, yeah. that's where you go. Yeah, no, 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 no. And the best coal too. Like high quality uncut coal. I don't know what that unfiltered. means. Unfiltered. Unfiltered. Coal unfiltered. There's no filters here. Black lung for days. <laughs> so mining, speaking of black lung, <laughs> mining is not historically known for being a safe or equitable profession and things were no better for the Mike miners. The conditions in uh, which the miners worked and were exposed, they were exposed to threats such as cave-ins, carbon monoxide poisoning, Coal dust explosions, long-term illness, and more. Like, imagine anything terrible that can happen to you when you're going underground and poking around. That's what happened. Yeah, yeah. everything. Just like everything any terrible. Bad. Yeah, minor shit. Um, so, in addition, the miners and their families lived in absolute squalor. Their living conditions were unsanitary and just straight-up fucking miserable. Mining at Mike wasn't exclusively a man's domain. Women and children also delved into the mines. But before you think this is some kind of equal opportunity situation, the women and children were paid far less. Hmm. So it's like, yeah, you can work here because we're desperate for people, but we going to pay you nothing. So this led to the mines relying more and more on women and children to cut costs. It wasn't uncommon for pregnant women to work Desperate to earn whatever money they could so that they could care for the babies that they couldn't choose to have. Great. Yeah, because birth control is not a thing at this time. Actually, I will get into that. This story is centrally focused around birth control. But yeah, can, can you imagine just like little kids going into the mines and their pregnant mothers like going down in their big bellies, 
picking around. I don't know whatever minors do. Like that's a horrifying, like that's dystopian. And I, I understand that that was not exclusively the situation just in Japan. It wasn't like, well, Japan's minors had it rough, but the minors in the United States were fine. No, no, no. It was like that everywhere. Okay. I get that. It's still gross. So the workers were exploited and lied to about the potential dangers and few safety precautions were taken to keep them safe. Later in the mine's history, on November 9th, 1963, an explosion killed 458 people. And then... And then... And then... This keeps going. And then led to a buildup of carbon monoxide, which killed 438 more people and who then, were not evac- evacuated or told about the explosion oh, Jesus at Christ. all. And 839 more suffered long-term effects from carbon monoxide poisoning, including brain damage. Great. Carbon monoxide, it's not a good thing. Don't do it. Just don't don't touch that shit. So, uh, there is a 2006 documentary about the mine called Echoes from the Mike Mine that tells its long, terrible history, and I want to track it down. And actually, the place is now an international heritage site, and whoever makes those decisions was like, hey, Japan, you can have this site recognized as an international historic heritage site, but you need to acknowledge how fucked up all of this shit was. Right, like acknowledge the fact that you fucked up, a shit ton of people died, yeah. you didn't tell other people, and then they died. Well, and this was- And ju- it can be a historic site then. This one incident was just in 1963. So yeah. one stupid recent, the place opened in the 1700s. You know that's not- <laughs> Oh no. The no. only, it's just that this stuff wasn't being recorded. But, all, but the last- that I was able to find, Japan hadn't quite done that. Yet, so no, they I don't want to admit it. I would love to. I would love to track down this documentary if I can get some English subs. Dub is great too, because I can do dishes and listen. But welcome to the podcast. <laughs> I'm so sorry for anyone listening the first time. <laughs> I'm not. I'm you know what? Yeah, all. no, we we are who this we are. Exactly. We are who I'm like, we we're are. not getting any better. We're dancing like we're dumb, 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 bum, ba, dumb. Drinking wine out of a drum, 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 drum. Okay, I said, had to make it parody so Kesha won't sue me. So, uh, witnessing this way of life, back to the story that was so disparate from her own was both devastating and eye opening for the privileged she's doing. Like, she's growing up in this very privileged life. Now she's seeing how people are suffering just to survive, just to get by, just to live in misery. <laughs> a combination of the unhealthy conditions around the mine and the emotional toll witnessing such suffering took led both Shizue and Shinroku's health to decline. Um, Shocking. Fortunately, they were privileged enough that where they were able to peace out and they relocated to the United States in 1919. So moving to the United States was a total game changer for Shizue. Uh, Her husband was working as an interpreter and consultant in Washington, D.C., which is kind of a big deal in the United States, if you're not aware. And this allowed her more independence, and she used this opportunity to enroll in secretarial and English courses. She also had the chance to meet activists through her husband because he's like this, he's very much like about social reform 
and making things better, especially yeah. for the working classes. Um, and one of whom, one of these connections that she got to meet was the Margaret Sanger. And for those who don't know, who are like, that thing sounds a little familiar. Margaret Sanger was a birth control activist, sex educator, and nurse who opened the first birth control clinic in the United States in 1916. She founded other sexual education organizations and and family planning organizations. Flannel planning. Very important in Minnesota here. You don't want to clash flannels. (laughs) Family planning organizations that would become Planned Parenthood. Um, Margaret Sanger was not a perfect person. She was kind of into eugenics. That fucking sucks. Uh, just want to point that out. I, you know, I don't, we're all, we're all this like warts and all stuff, but, uh, she'd and Margaret got chatting and she was inspired by Margaret's advocacy for birth control and the possibilities that could open up for women and people who can get pregnant. She thought back to the poor miners back in Kyushu and how they were trapped in the cycle of poverty and how birth control could give them independence and control over their lives, how many children they had, what their financial expenses were, and maybe if they had to go into the mines pregnant or not. Just saying. I'm kind of surprised we haven't covered Margaret. I had to look it up. I actually... But I, I think I have looked at doing her before and I was like... Yeah, like she's kind of really well known. Yeah, kind of not. That's kind of where I drew my line. I'm like, I feel like she's maybe too, too well known. I thought about covering her uh, after Roe v. Wade was overturned by uh, our Supreme Court. That grudge rap Supremes more Supreme than this court. That's that's a meme I saw online. I really Um, want Taco Bell. Thank you. I kind of want Taco Bell now, too. God damn it. I did that to myself. Emily attacked and da- and in her confusion, damaged herself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, that's I've been playing. But I decided to cover the uh, Jane Collective instead because that was definitely a lot more obscure. But yeah, Margaret Sanger. Fascinating figure. Yeah. But yeah, definitely s- read into super her. Super into eugenics. Not perfect. I and, and this is not an excuse. Everyone was into eugenics. Fucking not everyone, but like anyone that was anyone, yeah, was into eugenics because it was like the cool thing. It's kind of like phrenology, but phrenology God. wasn't really hurting anyone. <laughs> Technically, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly will die on this hell. <laughs> anyway, my history, Emily. Yeah, no, Margaret Sanger, fascinating figure, did a lot of great stuff. Was into eugenics, and that fucking sucks. We've covered other women who have been into eugenics before. Yeah. And, um, and like Emily said, we always try to, you know, cover the moles with, you know, we're never... The we're, warts. The warts, thank yeah. you. Moles um, are fine. Everyone has them. Yeah, unless they're cancerous, and then they should be cut off. Well, fucking A. <laughs> At I, least I'm from a I, skin cancer family. Okay. Anyways, um, I bring up something, and it's Taco Bell. You bring up something, and it's cancer. We don't... We. Try our best not to, like, pedestalize the women. Yeah. So, um, Shizue and Margaret would, be, would remain friends and collaborators throughout their lives, helping Yay. each other arrange trips between Japan and the U.S. So, like, Margaret huh? would go the, yeah. the to go to Japan and do her shit. Shizue would go to the U.S. and do shit, and they they like main, maintain this collaborative relationship. And Margaret would actually later comment that she wanted to be buried in Tokyo with Shizue. Which oh, I'm like, that's cute. Oh my god, you guys are like best 
fucking friends and I love you and I ship it. Ship it. Anyway, not only would birth control benefit women as individuals, but the country as a whole. She Zoe believed that women having bodily autonomy and being able to have fewer children or having control over the number of children they actually want to have, because having a child is not something that should be made, it's not a decision that should be made lightly, and it should be a decision. It shouldn't be like a, oh, I guess I have a kid now. Like, that's horrifying Yay. to me. Like what? Okay, what would happen if someone at, like just dropped off a can on your doorstep, and it's like, no, you have to keep this child. Like, no, oh, I'm not ready for like, this. I do not want this. I don't want this. I'm not prepared for this. I'm. I don't think I'd be a good parent, even if I think I would be. I don't want this, which automatically makes me probably not a great parent. So, um, sorry, I got on my soapbox a little bit here. Uh, but it would not only would all of this benefit women. And people who could have children, families in general, because they could have control over the number of children that they had and therefore control over their economic future. They would also be able to be better parents to the children that they had by only having the number of children that they wanted slash could handle Parents could provide better educational opportunities for their children, better economic opportunities, helping them grow into better educated adults and therefore create a stronger country as a whole. Who doesn't want that? Assholes. That's who. That's it. That's it. Fucking hemorrhoids. Anyway, when Shizue and Shinroku returned to Japan in 1921, she was determined to bring both birth control to her nation. Do it. Do it, girl. So during this time, birth control wasn't widely available or was not preventative. This is this is really sad. So the only options people had were condoms, as far as any preventative birth control went. Um, all of the other birth control, which I wouldn't even call birth, it, it was all reactionary. So it was abortion, which wasn't always safe or effective. And while abortion is healthcare. I think everyone would agree no one wants to be in that position where they need an abortion. Everyone would just love to totally bypass that situation entirely. Um, or infanticide under yep. in extreme circumstances. Like if you if it's between having another having a child that you can't support and dying. Well, and there were depending on like where you lived, and I'm not just saying like China or Japan or like Asian countries, it would sometimes depend on the gender of the child you had. Oh yeah, globally. No, yeah, globally. Globally, because we put male, more emphasis on men. Exactly, yeah. especially in anywhere that was like a f- more farming based. because or patriarchal. They, yeah, but like, because they were like, the men can do the work. Yeah, or anywhere the, the that female we... female children can't. Well, and anywhere that we limit the opportunities for a specific sex of child. Yep. Where it's actually more advantageous socially to have a certain sex of child, which is... God, when you put it that way, it yeah, just sounds really so awful. Bad. Good thing we don't do that anymore. But I, I love that idea because families are in control of how many children that they can financially support. Mm-hmm. They can better raise those children mm-hmm. because they're not overwhelmed. They're not broke because they can't afford to have these children. And therefore, in the long term, your society is better as a whole. And with birth control, you get to avoid the situation of 
abortion, which I know is a touchy subject for some people. And honestly, if you do, if you're not into abortion, one, don't get one to support birth control, right? Support condoms, support contraceptives, do it, please. If you are pro-life, please support feeding children and supporting them after they are born. That would just be swell. That'd be really wonderful. We'd really appreciate it. Maybe, maybe that's what we should focus more on because those kids are already suffering. Just saying, just saying. Anyway, only those in higher social standing or like intellectual circles even knew about oral contraceptives, also known as the pill. And it was, uh, and this contraceptive wouldn't become legal until 1999. I will get there. Wow. That is after we were born. Yeah. I know we are in our 30s, but we are basically infants. Just I mean, saying. comparatively, Comparatively. Yes. <laughs> so using her English and secretarial training from the United States, Shizue began working for the YWCA. That is not my dyslexia acting up. It is the YWCA. YWCA. Come and go in the YWCA. Yeah, no, because it used to be. This has nothing they, to do with the YMCA. But there, there used to be a organization that was basically the YMCA, but for women. Okay, and I thought it had the same acronym. This is, I, it might. This is not that. Though. Okay, um, this was an organization that introduced Westerners to Japanese culture, and I oh, think this is cool. I think this was part of like the whole response to not being so isolated and trying to form those relationships and those connections. Because I, oh god, I can't remember her name right now because she changed her name like three times. But there was that woman I covered where, when she was. An adolescent, she had the opportunity to go to the United States to get an education with a bunch of other girls because Japan was very big on Western Westernization. But then by the time she got back, they're like, no, we're kind of going. She like one of was that one of the ones that like she went and not everyone came back. I don't know. I I don't remember. I don't think so. Um. But then she got back to Japan and they had gone into this much more conservative, traditionalist yep. fashion. She's like, wow, great. So I have all this knowledge and none of you want anything to do with it. And she was really big in ed- into education for women. I'm so sorry. I can't remember her name right now. Because, again, she had like three names. Yeah, because she had her like traditional Japanese name. And yep, then she had a different she was name when she went to America. And then I think even when, and then she, when she went back back to japan she like it was like the name she chose for herself. yeah she like didn't go back to her traditional japanese name but it was like i remember it being like a really cool name that was still like japanese but it was like kind of an americanized japanese but maybe i'm wrong but yeah it was like the name she picked for herself yeah okay so people are screaming at us right now oh yeah 100 they're like it's this episode and this woman and honestly if you know our episodes that well i love you yeah no please um i i got her from rejected princesses too she had i can see the illustration she had a scar on her neck because she was in a war towards the end of like the feudal japan era before the meiji restoration and she was going to reject castles kelly will look it up kelly's kelly's a pro anyway Back to Shizu, whose name I have readily available. Um, In addition, she opened up her own import wool shop called Minerva Yarn Store, which I love. And this helped her to better build her own financial independence. So in her free time, aside from working a full-time job and running her own goddamn business, um, making me feel like an underachiever, Shizue wrote articles advocating for birth control access. And through her activism, she met Ganju Kato, 
1923, a labor organizer, and if that last name sounds a little familiar from the beginning of the story, just wait. He helped her connect with workers at the Ashio Copper Mine, and she worked to organize them behind her cause. So Shizue and Kanju worked closely together, and later, after Shizue got a divorce, the two would marry in 1945. So they met in, like, 1923, and they didn't get married until 1945. Shizue wrote of her marriage and divorce with Ishimoto, her first husband, saying that he, quote, had made a 180-degree conversion from his position as an intellectual humanist and a pacifist and had embraced the theory that it was natural for Japan to undertake imperialist aggression in Manchuria and Mongolia. So anyone who's kind of like aware of the years that I've been throwing out, this is during a time where Japan is getting real fucking grabby in China and like Mongolia and all that. And they're trying to take over. This is preceding world war two. This is post world war one. Japan's like ready to just fucking take shit. Um, and it sounds like her husband was getting caught up in this increased militarization, imperialism and nationalism that Japan was engaging in at the time, which I'm sure made his father, very proud, but was a total 180 from how he had been. And so their marriage kind of, their relationship dissolved in the 1920s. Divorce wasn't a simple matter for Shizue, however, like most women at the time. The divorce actually needed to be approved by the Imperial Household Agency because they were both from noble families. Because of this, even though their marriage was basically over in the 1920s, they couldn't get divorced for 20 years. Can you fucking imagine? So in 1934, uh, Shizue opened the first nonprofit birth control clinic in Japan. Back to some good news. Shizue's advocacy for birth control directly contradicted the government's position on population growth. Their goal was to grow Japan's population as quickly as possible to help grow global influence and to better support military growth. Because again, Japan's ready to just like take shit. These are all super great reasons to force half the population to have unwanted pregnancies. Great job. Great job. In 1937, Shizue was arrested by the government for promoting, quote-unquote, dangerous thoughts. Like, it's so vague and, like, dangerous thoughts. Like, she's not advocating for violence. She's just like, hey, maybe people should have control as to whether or not they are growing life inside them and then have to care for that life for decades after. Just saying. She only spent two weeks in prison, though, which was great. And this didn't slow her down. If anything, it ignited her fire. I did figure out who it was. Oh, please tell me the name. So the ending name was Sutematsu Oyama. Sutematsu Oyama. Thank you. I think that's why I called her Sutematsu. Sutematsu? Sutematsu. Sutematsu. I think that's why I called her throughout the story. But yeah, she had. That was the name she ended on. And her name reflected, because of what her name meant from Japanese to English, it almost reflected a sense of growth. Like her early name Mm -hmm. was something about like a tree or a flower. And then it, yeah, no, no, no. It was really cool. Go back and listen to whatever episode that was. It was fun. So if you're paying attention to the years, you'll know that this is all during World War II. Imperial Japan's involvement in World War II essentially shut down any meaningful progress in the birth control debate because the government was like, no, no, no. We need to be popping out kids like fucking crazy. Yep. 
Uh, she would give birth to a daughter with Kanju. So this is her second husband, Kanju mm-hmm. Kato. Uh, she described her daughter as a miracle who represented hope after the devastation of the war and losing her son. Oh, I don't think I updated these notes quite appropriately. How dare. Um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, her son from her first marriage was killed in the war. Which devastated her on a personal level. Oh, like she's I'm fighting sure. for all this stuff that's getting shut down by the war. Um, God, yeah. no, I. How did this not get in there? I remember writing all of this. All right, well, it's I'm gonna just going to. It's going to be later. And you're I'm going to recall like, it from it. memory. So, World War II was devastating for Japan, even beyond the United States dropping the atomic bombs. I think we've talked about it before. Uh, it was like 90% of all resource production went to the war effort. So that left mm-hmm. Japanese citizens broke, starving, wearing like nothing. Yeah. yeah, it was It was not It was not a good situation like we, for the we thought, civilians like, of Japan. rationing in the United States for World War One and World War Two was terrible. No, Japan's this was... was significantly worse. Well, and the whole the whole strategy was you sacrifice so that we can achieve exactly. this domination. And so not only is she suffering through this, this cause that's incredibly important to her, fighting for women's bodily autonomy and birth control and family planning is basically shut down and she loses her son to the war. Um yeah, so she does have she does have her daughter who kind of represents hope. And like a new future, a kind new of like a... some yeah. It's like we can continue, and I think I read in one source that she actually thought it was her son coming back to her. I'm like, oh my, that just that hurts my heart. Yeah, that yeah, in so many ways. So after World War II, Japan's focus moved from military dominance to demilitarization, with an emphasis on population control. Because after the United States dropped. The atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, Japan had an unconditional surrender. U.S. troops occupied Japan, and there was a lot of control on how Japan was going to rebuild and reform their country. And this is when the empire of Japan ended, and they just became Japan. Yay. So Shizue ran for office in the Japanese diet. I, I think that's how you say it. It's spelled diet. <laughs> Which I was saying wrong in my head for a long time before I figured out they weren't talking about food. <laughs> that um, we know of. The Japanese government, on the platform of promoting family planning, improving economic prospects for women, and promoting an American-style democracy. Hmm. She would write, quote, Giving birth to many and letting many die, repeating such an unwise way of life for Japanese women will result in exhaustion of the maternal body as well as mental damage and material loss for the family. Without the liberation and improvement of women, it is impossible to build democracy in Japan. So replace Japan with literally everywhere. And yes, that is exactly correct. Yeah. She was elected with 39 other women in 1946, and this was the first election in which women were allowed to run and vote. It was super great for them. So while this was a huge step for women in politics, Shizui's time in office didn't advance the role for women that she had hope, in the way that she had hoped. The predominantly male government marginalized Shizue and other women and put up roadblocks for them getting anything done. Yeah, it's one of those things that they're like, look, we're diverse. We're trying to like be better, but they're not actually. Yeah, it's better. like, well, we let women vote, 
but we're not going to let them do anything once they're in. And we've, that's a tale as old as time. We've covered so many women and like women of color, even who have broken these gender and color barriers. And it's like, oh, but they get into office and everyone does everything possible to make them as ineffective as they can. Despite this though, she, she's away. She was having none of this shit. She used her position to continue to fight for women's rights. She organized the first women's only rally in Tokyo in which women advocate for better economic resources. Uh, she, and she was still advocating for birth control, for women's rights, better economic standing, independence, education, all that good stuff. Just like full on feminist. Heck yeah. Her work didn't go unnoticed. She would be reelected four times. For six-year terms. Fuck yeah. So what's six times four? 24. 24. Ah! Yay math. During her time in office, Shizue championed birth control legislation, the abolishment of the feudal family code, established the Women's and Minors Bureau of the Department of Labor, and the Family Planning Federation of Japan in 1954, which is the Japanese affiliate of the International Planned Parenthood Federation, which again, Planned Parenthood, founded by Margaret Sanger, her BFF from in the past. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't look up when Margaret Sanger died or like where she, she was, was during around, all this. Yeah. This isn't Margaret's story. Okay, it's fine. So their mission is to achieve, quote, a society where everyone in the country can have access to voluntary reproductive health services. And if anyone has a problem to that very basic human rights statement, run. You're broken. Fix yourself. After Shizue retired from politics, she continued her activism and lectured on feminist issues and acted as chair of the Family Planning Federation of Japan. So now we're getting into kind of like a bigger picture thing. In the 1960s, the debate over legalizing oral contraceptives was picking up steam. But by 1989, it still like was everyone's just debating about it. Everyone's just like screaming at each other like, hey, we want control over our bodies and whether or not we're pregnant. And the other people are like, no, you shouldn't have that because why we hate you. Um. Anti-contraceptive activists argued that the legalization of oral contraceptives would lead to a reduction in condom usage and therefore result in an increase of STDs. Jesus Christ. Let me, please someone explain to me how that fucking works. I didn't realize you couldn't take the pill and use a condom at the same time. Spoiler, you totally can and people aren't fucking morons. (sighs) All right, collective eye roll. Then in 1999, the popular impotence drug, Viagra, was legalized in Japan after only six months of debate. Shocking. So, remember, we've been, they've been arguing about oral contraception since the 60s. And really before that, it was like the and 60s things really let's, started let's to pick specific. up Let's be specific. Oral contraceptive for women. Yes. Yes. Um, naturally. Oh, Okay. Oh, sorry. You avoiding getting pregnant? We can't do it because you'll probably get a bunch of slutty STDs. Men getting erections? Let's do it. That's totally fine. That, yeah, no, let's do it. Get hard, bros. I'm not against Viagra, okay? It's just so hypocritical. It's like, no, no, no. Oh, God, it's so bad. Erections are more important than people choosing whether or not to grow life inside their bodies. 
Um, so naturally people had a very similar reaction that we did and they lost their shit as the ministry of health was accused of being hypocritical, sexist, and generally full of shit. The answer is D, all of the above. Shih Tzu who was 102 goddamn years old at the time, was one of many. She's fucking killing it. And she's demanding action from the ministry with everyone else. Like, she's, she's helping with this charge. So the Ministry of Health couldn't hide behind their old bullshit excuses not to legalize oral contraceptives after legalizing Viagra. Yeah. To make people's dicks hard. Which, again, you know what? Everyone should be able to have an erection if they want to. But we should also be able to control whether or not we grow life inside of our bodies. Just saying. Emily's hot takes. Um, so they caved to public pressure and finally legalized birth, the birth control pill in 1999. So later that year, yep. they've been bitching about oral contraceptives and all the reasons they shouldn't legalize them for decades and then they they legalized Viagra in six months. And then in that same year, because people are so goddamn pissed off, they're like, okay, fine, you can have oral contraceptives. I guess if we're creating more boners, we should give you more control as to whether or not right. those boners get well, you pregnant. And, you know, oral contraceptives will lead to more sex, so more STDs. But, you know, giving, giving men boners will totally not do that. No, no, no. Yeah, because... No, because you can't take the pill and use a condom, but you can take Viagra and use a condom. Definitely. No, that's totally how this works. Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, my my face is getting really hot. Oh, I'm yeah. So no, me angry. too. Don't I'm worry. Like, oh, I'm just going to start screaming. All right. So. Uh, so in 1999. Japan became the last industrialized nation to allow low dose oral contraceptives. They're not the last nation period, but they are the last last industrialized nation. Two years later, on December 22nd, 2001, Chizue died at 104 years old, having lived through three goddamn centuries because she was born in the 1800s. Are you serious? She was born in the 1800s. Oh my fucking God. When I... When I read the year she died, I'm like, no, that's got to be a typo. There's no fucking way. And honestly, I think she was like, I'm just going to kick it until I can make sure this oral contraceptive thing goes off. And now it's like someone needs to take the torch from me because. Right. Like I'm I'm old. (laughs) It's been a minute. It's been a minute of me doing this shit. In the International uh, Planned Parenthood Federation's obituary for Shizue, they wrote that her work has, quote, continued to bear fruits for Japanese society, bringing down the number of abortions. Again, birth control does that. They didn't say that. That's me editorializing. Infant mortality and maternal death rates while increasing contraceptive usage to 80%. Japan's family planning model has been so successful that it attracts attention from other countries as a working model. During her life, Shizue was recognized for her incredible work, which is nice because not all of the women we cover get recognized while they're still alive. Sometimes not at all. She lived so long, they're like, we can't keep putting this off. (laughs) We have to start recognizing her. In 1988, she received the United Nations Population Award. And in 1996, the... 
Kado, Kado Shizue Award was established to commemorate her work honoring women's groups, organizations, or individuals who work to improve the sexual and reproductive health and rights of women. While cool. Japanese citizens have access to a variety of contraceptives now, there are still limitations and lack of access to emergency over-the-counter contraception. Uh, so like the plan, plan B pill, that kind of thing. Uh, it's only available with a doctor's permission, which again takes time, takes money, takes a doctor not being an asshole. Really, the fewer barriers that you put between people and contraceptives, the better it is for everyone because it is more accessible to people who might have higher barriers such as financial, medical insurance, all that stuff. The more barriers you put up, you're really just hurting the most vulnerable people in our society. And that's a dick move. Just saying. Stop being an asshole. So the fight continues for open access to contraceptives in Japan and healthcare access for women all over the world, including in the United States. But the spirit of Shizue Kato, the pioneer of birth control in Japan, continues to inspire us today. Because goddamn, if she could do this for 104 years, I can stay mad for the rest of my life. At the very least, I can keep fighting for the rest of my life. Because I'm not going to live to 104. <laughs> Just probably not. <laughs> I'm not healthy enough to live to 104. Um, I don't know. I'm drinking plenty of red wine. That is supposed to be healthy. Good. And I do take my antidepressants on a mostly consistent basis. Hey, every now and then I forget. Okay. It, it happens to the best of us. But yeah, that is the story of Shizue Kato. And that was one of those stories I didn't think was going to be as long as it was, but there were so many other elements to it that I want to get into. And I really, I didn't get as much into what's going on in Japan around the time she's doing all this. That was kind of like an interjection throughout the story, but it was just, I'm trying to focus on her, but she lived through such an insane amount of history yeah. And Japan is all over the map in those like three centuries that she was alive. And how that affected her trying to fight for birth control access for Japanese citizens. It's It, it was super fascinating. Highly encourage anyone else to look into her. Really, really cool figure. She like, she seems so interesting. And yeah, like, like you said, there was so much going on in the background that we, we just aren't able to cover in our capacity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was an amazing story. Thank she you. witnessed, she was alive. Three fucking decades. Both atomic bombs. And like, she lived in Tokyo, I, I think predominantly. So she was not in one of the communities, the, the cities affected, but she was like maybe third gen or second generation to not be a samurai in her right. family. And then she dies in 2001. That that just seems like an anachronistic anomaly to me. That's wild. And she's doing all this incredible work. And we're still seeing the effects of it today. It's insane. Like it has these rip, it has this rippling impact. And it's really wonderful. So Kelly. Emily. Kelly, my darling. Emily. My dearest. What? What are you thankful for? That's a great question. I was actually joking. I had a I had a work meeting the other day and I was kind of joking about my ignorance. I'm like, I've gotten really good at saying that's a great question. 
That's a great question. <laughs> and for nothing more than to give yourself a little bit of pause to be yeah. like, fuck, what's my answer to this question? And then usually ending with, I'm going to get back to you on that. Because that's such a good question. It requires entirely more thought and people smarter than me. Um, I know we already like thanked our patrons, or not our patrons, thanked our listeners at the beginning of this episode. There's but never I, a bad time, though. I really am thankful for our listeners and in particular our patrons i made a post on our patreon the other day um about how i was sorry because i'm behind there's a video that i was supposed to put up that i haven't yet emily probably doesn't know any of this i'm just not making eye contact with her right now that's because Um, i'm just gonna start going uh, uh. (laughs) and kelly won't be able to deal with it um but basically just how I haven't been doing well mentally and like there's been a lot going on lately and I just, I, I haven't and I can't and well, I'm going to try. But basically I like made a post about this and that like I have some new ideas for 2023 and stuff like that and at least two of our funerarians and funeristas like commented back and were like, no, like take care of you. We love you. We're here to support you. Like don't worry about it. I'm not crying. You're yeah, crying. no, like I like started tearing. Like they were super short messages, but like I could just, I feel the love. And That's I, all it takes. I really just appreciate our community. Like even though we haven't, or I haven't, sorry, Emily, like posted anything in a while, like that the fact that they're still there, they're still supporting us. And they're like, no, we still like love you and love what you do and like take care of you and we'll still be here. And that, that it feels good. I love that. I'm on the upswing now, but yeah. So kind of uh, piggybacking off of the, the theme of what you are thankful for, because uh, God forbid it, I come up with an original idea. I'm yeah. very thankful for the the people around me, particularly the women around me who have been incredibly supportive, who I can turn to when I'm having a difficult situation or whether it's my mental health or I'm not feeling safe about something or I'm just like, I am freaking out about something that probably shouldn't upset me the way it should, but it definitely is. And thank you for validating me. Like, it's yeah. it's so comforting to be able to reach out to the people in my life, share these vulnerable moments, share my concerns, and not only be validated, but supported. And that has been so huge. And just being able to kind of let my crazy out as I like to say or right. it's like okay I know this isn't logical I am completely aware of that but right. I am freaking the fuck out and you know Kelly obviously you're a part of that circle uh but it's it's been very nice it's been very helpful and it's wonderful because when you ha- you might logically know that you have those people in your life but then when you actually reach out to them and they come through it's this very reaffirming yeah. situation where like no i i do have people there's that who like love little me who are thing in the me. back of your mind that's like but are they yes yeah exactly and you know when you're when your friends show up for you it's uh Pretty it feels great. really good yeah i agree yeah well thank you i'm, I'm like all smiley now Th- like this- thank you for listening to episode 170 yeah we're on 170 i'm actually okay can we just pour one out for the fact that we didn't go like nice for 169? Cheers. Cheers to us. Cheers. Hot, sexy, thankful, loving all of it. Well, thank you for listening to. <laughs>
Jesus Christ, how have we been doing this many episodes? Thank you for listening to another 170th episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod, where I sometimes post pictures of my cute animals. I, know, while I'm I, gotta, I gotta get on that, apparently. <laughs> My animals are cute too. They're very cute. It's like, oh God, my I dog, haven't posted content. One of my content. dogs thinks she's a cat. She likes to hang out on the back of our yes, couch. Which is perfect because my cat thinks he's a dog. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's um, great. You know what? He is whoever he thinks he is. I'm not going to species shame him. I'm not going to force him to fit into this little species box that society tells him he should be in. You can also find us on Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningabouthistory.com where we have our merch, links to our Patreon, and a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, like everywhere you can listen to us. Um, and, you know, if you get in on the Patreon, like, now, you could get a sweet Christmas card from us because we do that because we're nice. Also, you can find us on Twitter if Elon Musk doesn't fucking censor us because he's got such a fucking boner for free speech, but then doesn't hate, doesn't like when people criticize him for being a piece of shit. Yeah, maybe just stick to Instagram. Uh, <laughs> I love Instagram. I do too. I know it's owned by Zuckerberg. I get it. I know I'm being a little it, bit of a hypocrite, but, but I do like Instagram. Um, But yeah, we got some merch. We got stuff like that. We love you. Rate us five stars wherever you listen. Leave us comments. Uh, we do have a contact form, too. If you have any ideas for content we could do in the future or women you'd like us to cover, it's on our website. Yeah, that's about it. Also, this has been a difficult year. And we're going to keep talking about how it's been a difficult year because we are, you know. It's been a difficult, like, several years. I actually, I did bar trivia recently and... It, one of the yeah. categories Why was, was the 21st century because no. <laughs> I was invited I by know. someone I else. Kidding. I was not in a position to invite a bunch of people. Um, but one of the, one of the categories was 21st century. And the clue was, Oh, the year that the Taliban retook Afghanistan and that shipping vessel got stuck in the canal and all this. I was like, Oh, 2022. And someone's like, no, that was, was 2020, wasn't it? It was 2021. And I'm like, oh, my God. The forgotten year. No, it's it's no, not even that. It's year. just that it feels like it's been a constant blur of traumatic events. And so, I you don't know, know what's happening 2023, when. it's the year for shit to maybe not be traumatic. I will say 2022 was year terrible. of the Phoenix. 2022 overall has been a pretty good year for me as a person. It's the year of the Phoenix. It is rising up from the ashes. 2021 was the year to fuck around and 2022 was the year to find out. And then 2023 is our year to fucking shine. Okay. Yes. Okay. Our crowns will be glowing. Anyway. Thank you for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Totally normal, super chill, not outrageous episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. Happy Power Day. Bye. Bye. Oh, God. <laughs>